Good morning, good morning, good morning. How's everyone doing today? Tired? My name is Mike, if I haven't met you before. It's a joy to be with you this morning. And I'm going to bring the Word of God to us from the book of Colossians. And so if you have your Bibles, you guys can turn there. Colossians chapter 4. We've been uh, working as a church through Colossians for the last few months, and we are nearing the end, the final chapter, the final countdown, the final conclusion of what Paul desires to teach us uh, as he teaches the church of Colossae. So we're going to be looking at Colossians 4, verses 2 to 6. Now, as we've come to this point in the book, uh, Colossians, the first half, really begins to deal with the question, who is Jesus? And what are some of the beautiful descriptions that Paul has used to describe Jesus in the first half of Colossians? What are some lang- what are some phrases or words? It's okay if you uh, do a little looking back to in your notes, so to say. It's not an exam. What are some of the ways that Paul has described Jesus? The image of the invisible God, right? God incarnate, God in flesh. The firstborn of creation, right? He's the creator, the sustainer of the cosmos. What are some other things? The head of the body, the head of the church, right? The foundation of the church. The risen Lord, the one who defeated death for us, right? The risen Savior, the one who not just died for our sins, but was raised on the third day so that we could find life with God through Christ. And so Paul begins the first half of Colossians really describing who Jesus is because the second half of Colossians is all about if this is who Jesus is, this is what it means for your life. This is how it transforms things. This is how it transforms not just who you are, but what you do. And so after looking at Jesus, Paul begins to describe how we as the church, we're we're supposed to be a people of, of thankfulness, giving thanks in all things. We're supposed to be a people of righteousness who seek the needs of others before our own. We're supposed to be a people of peace, of shalom, bringing restoration to the world around us. We're called to be a people who have the moral um, uh, new self, as Paul describes it, being in Christ, taking all the characteristics of Christ, getting rid of sin, and putting on humility and meekness and patience and justice. And so this is where Paul has been at in the letter, all these things looking at who Jesus is, then looking at who we are in Jesus, and now as we finish the letter, we're going to be looking at the implication of, well, what is the purpose? What are we supposed to be doing? What are we called to? What does it mean to be the people of God? And he begins to describe it by talking about the mission that we are called to be on. And just before we jump into the text, I want to share a little quote from a guy named Jonathan Hashiashi, Hayashi, and he says this in one, of his, in one of his books. He says, Christianity, detached from mission, leads to either lifeless moralism or joyless legalism. 
And, and what he's saying is exactly what Paul has been saying throughout this entire letter. Is saying, unless our focus is on Christ and the purposes he has for us, what we can often do with religion is, is we turn it into moralism, right? Moralism being, I can be a better person. I need to be a better person. But the problem with that worldview is, can you ever be a perfect person? No. So it's an endless cycle, an endless cycle. That's why it's lifeless. If, if life were just about moralism, how good of a person you can be, we fail every time, right? But on the flip side, what also happens that we can do if life just becomes about moralism, we don't just look at ourselves usually because when we fail in moralism, we say, okay, I don't want to look at myself anymore because I mess up and I'm not the person I want to be. So who do I begin to look at? Everyone else, right? And so joyless legalism. And legalism is, oh, I can't actually follow the rules, but I'm going to expect everyone else around me to follow the rules. Anyone experience that? Right? And we quickly realize that, oh, if we can't be perfect people, let's expect everyone else to be purple, uh, perfect people. And we judge them. We hold them to standards that we even ourselves can't fulfill. And so what's the calling the church has to devoid ourselves and detach ourselves from this lifeless moralism, joyless legalism. Well, first of all, it's being in Jesus, right? Because in Jesus we find the grace that we are not the people we're supposed to be, yet God loves us. In Jesus we find that he is the only perfecter of fulfilling the law, therefore we can't live in legalism for ourselves or others because we realize we need to be in Christ. And so Paul now begins to say, that's the world that you need to detach yourself from, but here's the world that you need to engage in. And this is some of his final words to the church in Colossae. And this is what he says in verses 2 to, to 6 of chapter 4. He says this. This is the calling of the church. Continue steadfastly in what? In prayer. Being watchful in it with what? Thanksgiving. We now see a major theme of Thanksgiving here. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be what? Gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so what, what Paul is presenting before us is really the call for the church to be on mission for what we're supposed to engage the world in. So the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just about how he transforms our lives, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is how we as a church now have a calling to transform the world around us by bringing people the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so the question is, how? How do we do that? How do we live the mission of God that he has called us to? And the big idea that Paul is bringing before us is that to reach our community, we need three things. We need prayer, we need transformed lives, and we need wise and gracious words. So 
Why does Paul bring up prayer first? I mean, this is his first criteria for being missional. Now, for me, when I think of going on mission and explaining the gospel to people, the first thing that's often in my mind is, well, how do I explain this to change their worldview, right? In other words, how do I explain the gospel? How do I explain who Jesus is so that we can have a a conversation and I can be persuasive, so to say, in defining the truth of the gospel and who Jesus is? And so often my mind goes when I'm entering a conversation, how do I defend Jesus and how do I make the gospel understandable, right? And Paul says, that's not where you begin the conversation. Where do you begin the conversation? Prayer. Why? Because, yeah, Don just quoted this last week in our prayer time. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. In other words, it's the Spirit of God that brings about transformation. It's the Spirit of God that that brings about the change of someone's heart. It's the Spirit of God that brings this, this yearning to understand truth. And so what opens the door again and again is prayer into someone's life. And so often we forget that. So often we, we talk to people who are resent, uh, resistant to the gospel, is talking to people who are counteracting the gospel. And so often we think we have to just purely enter into perhaps even argumentative mode. But, but Paul says no. It begins in prayer. It begins on a life dependent on the Spirit of God. He says pray, pray, pray. And this is really the reality our church has to come to terms with, is first and foremost, leading a transformation of our culture and community begins with the dependence upon God. He is the only one with that power. And so, how do we get motivated for prayer? Uh, Because anyone ever struggle to get motivated for prayer sometimes? And here's a beautiful thing that Paul reminds us of. To be motivated for prayer, not only be steadfast, but be watchful in it with what? With thanksgiving. In other words, gratitude, thanksgiving. That's what motivates us for prayer. Why? Because if I start living a life of thanksgiving and I start reflecting on all the things that God has done for me, if I start reflecting on the way God has transformed my life, reflecting on the way that God has been gracious to me, the way that God has been merciful to me, the way that God has forgiven me, the way that God has been generous to me, the way that God has provided to me, if I start living from thankfulness, is that not going to spew out? Is that not going to come and transform the way not only I praise and pray to God, That's what motivates us. That's how we are transformed so that we can transform others to be truly appreciative. And so Paul says, here's this motivation. Thanksgiving toward God is not just going to transform you, but it's going to transform your life and the way you interact with others. And so he says, pray. Now, what do we pray? What are we called to pray? He says, pray also for us. So who's he talking about? The apostles, the leaders of the church, the, the people who are spreading the gospel, the people who are going out on, on global mission at times. So he's given this indication to realize that we need to be praying consistently for the gospel to be spread throughout the world. And we need to be praying specifically for our missionaries and the leaders of the church 
so that they can be effective in what God has called them to do. And then what's wild to me is he says this. He says, pray also for us that God may open to us a what? A door for the word to declare the mystery of a Christ on account of which I am in prison. So again, this is the first time that Paul has mentioned his context in this letter. And what context does he mention it in? That he is in prison writing it because of the gospel, because of his desire to follow Jesus. But what's crazy to me, and, and Don brought this out in our prayer meeting on Monday, um, what does Paul not ask for here? What door does he ask to be opened? The door to the gospel. Not the door of what? Not the door of the prison cell. Isn't that crazy for us to think about right now? That as Paul is writing this letter and he's asking for the church to pray for him, he's writing for prison and he's not praying, could you guys pray that I get out of prison? Could you guys pray that the, the cell doors would be opened? He says, pray that the doors would be opened to what? The gospel. In other words, that the news of Jesus is even more important than my very life or my very comfort or my very freedom. Paul says that's what we pray for, for opportunities for the gospel. It's wild to think about, hey? When we think about even our prayer life, so often what we pray for is open doors for opportunities for ourselves, or we pray for finances to be opened up, or we pray for a hardship to be opened up, and yet Paul says, I don't care about any of those things compared to the gospel. The gospel is what needs to be open. And then he prays for clarity, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. In other words, that the story of the gospel can be at times so wild because it's so spread throughout history, and yet Paul, Paul prays for clarity, clarity as he interacts with the Jewish believers who have such an Old Testament understanding of understanding who the Messiah is, prayer for, as he interacts with the Gentiles who have no concept of the history of the Messiah and who Jesus would be. So clarity of who Jesus is, that is the prayer. Now, what's the next thing that Paul caused the church towards? We read about it in verse 5. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. And so walk in wisdom. This transformed life is what Paul is talking about. Now, now the early church, what, what was the first name that they were given? Does anyone know? The very first name. The way, Right? They were called the way, then they were called disciples, then in Antioch they were called Christians, right? Now, the reason the church was first called the way is because the way of Jesus was what they were called to be living out. In other words, the entire mission and purpose behind the church is that they would be like little Christ who bring the presence of Christ, his characteristics, his actions, his mission to the rest of the world. And that movement... It's spreading till this day, right? Amen to that? 
2,000 years later, there's people walking the way of Jesus. And so Paul says, walk in wisdom. In other words, walk the way of Jesus towards outsiders. In other words, those who don't know who Jesus is, making the best use of the time. And so he's, he's given this indication that as we walk the way of Jesus, there's going to be all these distractions that come in our life. There's going to be all these things we can invest our time and energy and resources into, but Paul says, no, you need to be singular in your focus in life. Yes, well, God will give you calling in various capacities, but your ultimate calling is what? To walk the way of Jesus, first and foremost. That's the most important thing. That's what transforms your life. Now, how do we make the best use of the time? That's, that's probably the hardest question out of all this text, isn't it? Because who here has the excuse of busyness? <laughs> right? I mean, that's a common thing. I'm trying to watch myself more, but even as we talk to people, how is life going? Oh, my goodness, we are so busy. And the things we're honestly busy with don't really have that much eternal significance, do they? And, and so Paul, Paul says, you know what? We need to be wise with how we use our time. We need to pay attention to use our time to the best capacity. And so much of our life is filled with busyness and empty things that don't really matter. And Paul says that's walking the opposite of walking in wisdom. Make the best use of your time. Now, here's what I think is fascinating. Paul tells us to use our time in a wise way not so that we can have balanced lives, which I think is important at time, not so that we make sure we create margins for rest, which is also important, not so that we can have leisure time or whatever capacity we're talking about, but he says the best use of your time is by walking the way of Jesus towards non-believers. In other words, the best use of your time is to be fulfilling the mission of God. That's the best use of our time. And that's why he clarifies what it looks like in verse 6. But he says, how do we use the best use of our time? By being a missional people. By, by caring about people that don't know who Jesus is. By serving and loving those who are vulnerable. By um, disadvantaging ourselves for the advantage of others. All these things. So how do we specifically use our time in a wise way then? Well, let me bring you an example from a guy named Jeff Vanderstelt. Uh, he's a pastor in the Pacific Northwest, and he wrote a book called Saturate. And he's someone who writes a lot about the missional church. He, he writes a lot about theology and everyday life. And, and he has this beautiful paradigm that I've really found helpful in his book called Saturate. And he lists six things that we do regularly in our life. Six things that are natural habits. And he says to make the best use of our time, here's to take these natural habits, these six things that are often in life, and use them for mission. And so he says the first thing is what do we do often three times a day? We eat, right? So he says, well, instead of just eating meals on our own or even as individuals or as a family, he says, create a space for meals to be enjoyed with others. Create a space for meals 
to have an opportunity for Jesus to join you at the table so that you can converse with others and share the gospel and talk about Jesus and his goodness. So he says, eat. That's the easiest one, right? And that's one of the most enjoyable ones, right? The next thing he says, and this is something we don't do often as we should, but he says the next thing is we need to listen. The habit of listening. And he says we need to not only quiet ourselves to listen to God, but we need to listen to others. We need to hear the stories of other people. We need to hear the experiences of other people. We need to hear the grief and the hardship of other people. We need to listen to how God has been working in other people's lives. See, so often when we think about missional evangelism, what do we think about? We think about going and telling, right? We think about going and speaking. We're so often what, what brings up beautiful conversations is when you just sit and listen to someone's story. When you just sit and hear the grief and hardship or celebration that they're going through in life and engage in life together. So eat, listen, and then the next one is story. And so he says, know and rehearse God's story and how the story of redemption fits into someone's life. Um, Again, we as a culture, we spend so much time with storytelling and so much of it is entertainment-based, where we watch movies, we watch TV, we, we're deeply embedded in the life of story. But sadly, many of us don't even know the story of God. We don't know the story of Scripture. We don't know the story of redemption. And we don't nearly know it enough to the point where if someone's needing an answer to an existential question to be able to tell the story of God through the lens of what they're struggling with. It, that is exactly what we need to be able to do and speak into. Then he says the fourth one is bless. Bless others, especially those who don't deserve it. Bless people simply out of love and generosity. Bless people simply to show them that you care. Uh, the fifth one he talks about is celebrate. Now, sometimes... Uh, We don't celebrate nearly good enough as Christians, do we? (laughs) Whereas part of the the kingdom of God is is language of party and celebration and enjoyment, right? And so often we we celebrate in a very modest way or we celebrate in a way um, that's very conservative. But but the scripture over and over again calls the church to celebrate and be joyous. And I mean, even when we think of the first miracle of Jesus, what was the first miracle of Jesus? Water into wine at a party to keep the celebration going, to, to establish the, the celebratory nature of what the kingdom of God looks like. And so we celebrate. Now, part of celebration is inviting people who don't know Jesus into the celebration of who God is. And then the sex, the sex category that Vanderstelt brings up is recreation. In other words, when we recreate, recreation. And so recreation, we spend time playing sports, we spend time uh, playing in the snow, we spend time doing all these extracurricular activities. He says, take that and use it for mission. Take those relationships 
and speak the gospel into the lives of people. Take what you do for hobbies and fun and do it in a way that connects with others to make Jesus known in their lives. And so again, these, these are simple things, right? But this is the way of Jesus. That's what a transformed life looks like that's focused on the mission of God. Now, the final thing that Paul brings up, verse 6, says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, this is pretty beautiful language when we think about it. Jesus was known as being a person of truth and of, any guesses? We just talked about in this passage. Truth and grace, right? Now, those are pretty important categories to keep together, aren't they? Because if you're someone who is obsessed with truth, and I mean we are people of truth, but if you're talking to someone and all you have to tell them is truth, and that truth may be very hard for them to hear, what are you going to do to them? You're going to turn them away. You're going to break their spirit. You could even harm them if it's a truth they're not ready to hear. You could hurt them, right? It's easy to hurt people with truth, is it not? You can say the right thing in the wrong way. And so what Paul was reminding us here is the way of Jesus is to be a people not just of truth. In other words, we don't just say what is right, but we also say it with grace. Why? Because grace still establishes a depth of relationship. With grace, it doesn't destroy the person. With grace, it doesn't destroy the relationship. With grace, it doesn't bring more hurt and pain to perhaps a difficult circumstance already. And so we balance our conversations always with grace and truth. And I think this is pretty important because there's so many times where I've heard people sharing their faith or talking about their faith, and the conversation is usually, I am right and you're wrong and you're an idiot, right? <laughs> is that a healthy conversation? Not at all, Right? Where, where we're supposed to be a people of grace. In other words, we, we say, well, what are questions that you're struggling with? Like, maybe I've struggled with those questions as well. Let's walk through this together and find out truth. Let's process this in a loving conversation rather than a battle against one another. And, and that's why Paul says, not just that, that you know how you ought to answer each person, in other words, you could have all the right answers and still break a relationship. You can have all the right answers and still turn someone away from desiring to seek who God is. He says there has to be grace that goes with it. Gracious words, which means speaking with humility, with speaking with understanding, with, with listening. And so... Paul, again, is, is speaking to a context in a world which is extremely hostile to Christianity, was it not? I mean, remind, where is Paul again? Paul is in prison. 
It's a culture extremely hostile and antagonistic to Christianity. And, and the temptation in a hostile environment is to put your guards up and fight. But Paul says our natural response to a hostile environment is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is to come into a hostile, antagonistic environment and speak with grace and truth. Amen? And, and so as we, as we think about the calling that Paul has given us, as we think about the calling the, and the mission that God has given us to as the church to be a people of grace and truth to our community, I pray that we would take this passage and that it wouldn't just be something that we leave here on the pages of Scripture, but instead that it would bring transformation into our lives so that we can be a people of prayer, so that our lives will be used in the wisest way possible for the mission of God, and that we will speak with grace and truth to whoever we're interacting with. So let's pray to that extent together. Gracious Father, we come before you. And Lord, after this passage, we, we come in confession. Lord, we confess, first of all, because we do not nearly pray enough as we should. And we thank you that you are gracious and patient with us as we don't. But I pray that you would develop in us such a deep desire to be so dependent upon you and the power of your spirit as we interact with others. And Lord, that our lives would be so deeply transformed by the mission that you have called us to, that you would remind us over and over again to make the best use of our time. And Lord, the, the beautiful thing is you've created so many avenues in our work environments, in our families, in our friend relationships, all these different opportunities for us to be not only walking the way of Jesus, but to be telling the story of Jesus. And Lord, prayerfully welcoming people into a relationship with you, a relationship that you have brought about restoration towards. And Lord, we also pray that as we interact with others, Lord, especially as we interact with others who um, are not in a relationship with you, who perhaps might even be antagonistic against the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would give us patience, that you would give us gracious words, that as we speak truth, that we would do it with love and compassion and curiosity, never with arrogance or pride or a sense of entitlement. And so, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, these would come into fruition, into our hearts and our minds, so that not only we would experience the love that you have for us, but that we would be able to show the love that you have for us to others. And so empower us by your Spirit, we pray. Amen.